The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, as you know, we have been going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, We are nearing the end. The end is in sight. And uh, for, for those of you who haven't been here, we have taken the year to walk through the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, throughout the book, we've looked at what, what are the gospel truths that we believe as Christians? What, what, what are the implications that the gospel gives upon our lives? And then, practically, how do we apply the gospel in every sphere of life? How do we be, in truth, gospel-centered, gospel-driven people? Well, this morning we're going to look at how we reflect the gospel in our work. And so you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. That will be our passage this morning. As you're turning there, this past week I ran across an article titled, The Top 10 Weirdest Jobs in the World. Now, I won't go through all 10, but I'll highlight a few of them for us this morning. Well, one of them, some of you may really enjoy this job. One of them is a professional sleeper. So so there's a hotel in Finland that hired a member of staff to be a professional sleeper. So they would go into the different rooms, they would sleep, and they'd test out the beds to make sure that they were nice and comfortable for the guests. Another one, these are not made up, at least, well, I guess anything could be made up on the internet. So, But uh, according to the internet, these are real. Uh, the, The next one is a drying paint washer. Someone's literally paid to watch paint dry. And so someone in the United Kingdom, they have the job, and he spends his days painting sheets of cardboard to test how long new paint mixes take to dry and how they change in color when they do dry. Not, not the most thrilling job. Uh, another one is a, called a snake milker. Uh, the, the, now this job's not for the lighthearted. The job of a snake milker is to collect the venom of poisonous snakes and jars to which then they use to create the anti-venoms uh, for, for snake bites. And uh, yeah, thank goodness for those people because I don't think – I hate snakes and so I don't think I could do that job. Another one though is that of a – if you don't like snakes but you love dogs, you could be a dog food taster. The dog food taster, its job is to taste new dog food products, including bones, the meat, and biscuits. And so they do this to test for consistency of flavor and how it compares to other dog foods. So that means you've got to taste the other dog foods and, uh, and how it compares to human food. This one, though, is probably my favorite. And that is of a scuba diving pizza delivery man. Not made up. So, so there's a underwater I, – I just found this out this last week. There's an underwater hotel in Florida. And, and so if that isn't bizarre enough, they have a scuba diving pizza delivery guy who supplies people in their underwater rooms with pizza. And so it's in a watertight case, and, uh, and so he, he scubas down to them, knocks – I don't know how he actually does it, knock on the door or what, but uh, – uh, that, that could be problematic. Um, but, uh, but then the, he gets it delivered to them. Well, well, why do I bring these up? Well, maybe to bring a little brevity. Um, but additionally, the reason I share these is that no matter what your work is, as long as it is ethical, our passage this morning teaches us that when Christ redeems us, he redeems all of us, including our work. Therefore, 
All work is good work if done to the glory of God. This morning we will see that God created our work, sin cursed our work, but that Christ, he redeems our work. And so let's, let's read our passage this morning. The word of God says this, bond servants, or it could be literally translated as slaves, it's a word doulos. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for not praying for Miss Paula earlier. Pray for Paula Greer that you would comfort her in her time of sorrow. That you would be near to her. That your promises would be true. That your peace which surpasses all understanding would guard her heart and her mind in Christ Jesus. And pray that you would be near to the brokenhearted and bind up the crushed in spirit. Pray that through this she would taste and see that you even amid this great and unforeseen tragedy that you are still good, that you're still on your throne, that heaven still awaits her, and that heaven is the reality for Benji. Father, we come now and we pray and we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illumine your word for us and that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. We don't come for a lecture to learn some neat things, we come to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so first, church, we got to set the stage a little bit this morning. First, we will see that God created our work. And so to understand this passage in light of Uh, David will help me out here. In light of the meta-narrative, in light of the overall story of Scripture, we need to see that our work first, that our work, it is good work. Because our work is tied to God's original design, to his created order, to his creation of all things. In Genesis chapter 2, and remember, when did the fall take place? Genesis chapter 3, right? So in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord says this. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the field. And so from the very beginning, God created the institution of of work for mankind to steward and to cultivate his creation for the purpose of promoting human flourishing in our world. And so I know a lot of times we we have maybe a bad taste toward work, but we need to remember, we need to get our definitions and our mindsets from scripture and not from our experiences. We need to remember that work is a good gift from God that existed before the fall, which means it's rooted again in his created 
design. And even when, when we see this in the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, when he gives the commandment of the Sabbath, what does he root, uh, what does he base the command of rest in? In his work. And so I'll remind you, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Why? Because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And so that means, church, that our work is to be modeled after God's work in the world. From the very beginning, the Bible teaches that work is a good gift from God that is meant to promote human flourishing in our world. God created our work, but but this isn't always our experience of work, right? It, we don't always see work as a good gift from the Lord, do we? So what happened? What happened? Well, we'll see if we go another chapter later in Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin cursed our work. In Genesis three seventeen through 19, due to the effect of sin in our world and sin's corrupting power, it says this, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the, plant, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread to your, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so from that moment on, what was meant to be a good gift from God has now been cursed and corrupted by sin. What was meant to bring joy and happiness now brings pain and stress upon us. What was meant to promote human flourishing has now, been a, has now become a means of greed for many. And what was meant to be life-giving has now become laborious in our sin-cursed world. And so even in our work, we, we have a hunger, a desire. We see the need for redemption, which leads us to our third and our main point this morning, and that is this. Christ redeems our work. And so as I shared a little bit earlier, when we look at this sketch of the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are primarily about gospel doctrines. What is the truth that we believe? What, what did Jesus do in his life, his death, and his resurrection to save us from our sins? So that's the summary of Ephesians 1 through 3. And then Ephesians 4, Paul works out the implications for our lives, right? We, we are in line of the gospel because we are new creations in Jesus. We're, we're to put off the old man and we're to put on the new man, right? It's that picture of taking off our old garments of clothing and putting on our new garments of righteousness in Jesus. And then we're now in the gospel application aspect of the book of Ephesians. And so if we read our passage this morning, why do I bring that up? If we read our passage this morning just in isolation and not understanding the context of the book of Ephesians, we will miss the point entirely. We'll miss the point that the gospel is meant to shape how we work. Ephesians 2.10, following on the hills of Ephesians 2.8-9, two of the greatest summaries of verses on the summary of what is the gospel. 
Paul says this in 2.10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So this, what this means is that we are now to live and to work in light of the life and work of Jesus Christ. We are to live and to work in light of the life and the finished work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is to shape and to empower our work now. And so while the world sees work as a necessary evil to make ends meet, in the Christian worldview, we would say that no. Work, it is from God. It is good. And though it is cursed by sin, it's now redeemed by Christ. And one day, it will be restored back to its good design. When the curse of sin is vanquished, and when Christ our King reigns supreme on the earth. Right? Do you see that picture of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, even in our work? Okay, so that's all introduction to our passage this morning. Notice in verses 5 through 8 that Paul says, no matter what your work might be, and no matter what your station of life you might find yourself in, Paul says, in Christ, you are a free man. You're free because in Christ, you are his slave, his servant alone. No no other person, Paul says, has authority over you because you are Christ's and he is yours. And so whether you find yourself in a pleasant work situation or in a painful and difficult one, whether you feel your, your employer is being just or unjust, you can look at your boss and your employer. And with sincerity and honesty in heart, you can say this. I'm not going to obey you, master, boss, employer, because you claim authority over me. I'm going to obey and be submissive from a pure heart because I'm doing so to obey my master in heaven. And so though we have to ask the question, with all of this language of servant or it's a bit um, sanitized, that word literally is slave in verse 5. With this language of slave and master, we need to ask the question, the difficult question, does the Bible, does it condone slavery? We, We don't want to just jump over difficult questions when we're reading through Scripture. And so to answer this question, we need to understand that slavery dynamic within the Roman Empire. One one commentator said that it has been computed that in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. They, They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but also educated people, doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt, and prisoners of war were often They often became slaves. It's estimated that nearly one in every three person in the city of Rome, Corinth, and Ephesus, they were slaves. And and so the issue, the problem, the institution of slavery was pervasive. It, It was socially permissive, and it was economically profitable within the Roman Empire. And so back to the question then, what... Why didn't Paul outright condemn slavery? And why didn't he call upon every Christian master to free his slave or his bondservant? Well, I think maybe there, there are at least two answers to this. One is just right, a pragmatic reason. And so during this time, Christians, they were politically powerless. 
They, they were seen as a fledgling sect with teachings in opposition to the Roman Empire. And so if Paul were to start condemning this powerful, pervasive, permissible, and profitable institution, it likely would have led to Rome seeking to exterminate and destroy the early church. Now, now this is not to excuse or, dis, excuse or dismiss the practice of slavery, but the reality was that for Christians during their day, during the early church time, they lacked any political power or social leverage to see any real societal change. Again, you're thinking 60 million slaves. It is steeped within every aspect of culture. And so the Christians of the New Testament time, they lacked any political power or social leverage to see change take place. So that's maybe one pragmatically why Paul doesn't go that route here. But then I think secondly, there's another reason why Paul chooses to go this route. You'll notice in verse 9, Paul says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who both is their master and yours is in heaven, and that there's no partiality with God. And so what Paul says unequivocally is that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, because now you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul, Paul's focus maybe to contemporize it. Paul's focus here isn't on ex- exposing the deep state or bringing down the system. Rather, Paul's focus seems to be placed on seeing individual lives and relationships transformed by the power of the gospel, which will then eventually, eventually begin to transform the culture where they live. And I know maybe we are prone to this same temptation today. We're prone maybe to rail at a certain president or political party or policy that is set in place. But yet at the same time, we personally neglect to reflect the gospel to those who are in our immediate sphere of influence. Now, now to be sure, slavery, it is an evil sin and an abomination to the Lord. But I think in a word, what Paul is saying here by taking this route is this. Control what you can control. If God has raised you up to be a Wilberforce or a Frederick Douglass or an Abraham Lincoln, then see to it that slavery is abolished. If you have that political clout. But if that's not the case, the gospel should still transform how you interact with those in your life. Paul's focus here is on the individual and how each Christian is to reflect the power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel in individual relationships. And so in other words, what Paul says in verse 9 here is that masters should treat their slaves as if they weren't slaves. They're to treat their bondservants with dignity, equality, and respect because that key phrase, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. You got one master, and that is our God in heaven. And so therefore... Paul saying, you will be held accountable one day for whether or not you loved your neighbor as yourself. You will be held accountable whether you are merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. And you will be held accountable whether you did to others as you would have done to yourself. Paul's placing the onus not on societal institutions, but on the individual here in this passage. And so as we wrap that this uh, 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 excerpt up, To be sure, there are places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says to slaves, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Avail yourself of that opportunity. 
But he's also saying here, regardless of your personal circumstance, because the gospel redeems us from our sin and makes us new creations, it should also transform the way we interact with those who are under our authority and and those with whom we are under their authority. And so just practically, does this not have implications if you're in a managerial context at work? How you treat those under your authority, you should be reflecting the gospel to them and, and treating them with dignity, respect, and equality. And so without then condoning the practice of slavery, Paul can still say, slaves, obey your earthly authorities and entrust yourself to a faithful creator while doing good. Because in doing so, you are obeying your heavenly master. We are to submit to our earthly authorities in life because when we do so, we are showing we're constrained not by their authority. No, we're constrained by the authority of Jesus Christ over our lives. And when we do and we are to do so with a sincere heart and a goodwill, Paul says, doing our work for the Lord and not for men. Colossians chapter 3, it puts it a little similar but different way. Paul says this, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so this means that as Christians, no matter what we're doing, whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or whether you're the janitor at one of those companies, whatever we do as Christians, We should be known for our strong work ethic because when we work, we're working not for a boss, not for an employer, not for a pet chick. We're working for King Jesus and all that we do. Now, you you might be thinking, yeah, but you, you, you don't understand my personal work situation. The job I'm doing, you know, it's not fulfilling. It's not personally gratifying. It's not giving me satisfaction and joy. Now, if, you, you, if you're thinking that or if you see yourself maybe above a certain type of work, I want to remind you again who Paul is writing this passage to. He's writing it to who? To slaves, right? Now, question, do you think they naturally enjoyed their work? Do you think they naturally thought their work was fulfilling and gratifying and, and meeting all of their passions and desires? Probably not, but even so, Paul still says, do it with all your might, because no matter what you are doing, what you are doing is ultimately for the Lord Jesus. And therefore, I'm going to repeat this intentionally. Therefore, all work is good work if it is done to the glory of God. This past week, so some of you, most of you know uh, that I I am not only a pastor, but I also uh, work a full-time job within engineering. And so with my engineering work this week, uh, it was was a little bit stressful. It was full of deadlines, and deadlines are great, meeting deadlines, but deadlines coupled with problems, not so great, right? And so it was a bit stressful. And so I think maybe I even aged a a year (laughs) this past week. (laughs) And so I write this sermon to you. Not from an ivory tower, right? I get it. I understand. I know the grind. I know doing difficult things, right? I'm there in the trenches with you. But this past week, I had the choice to make. Will I complain and bemoan the difficulty and the stress of my work? 
Will I, this is the key. Will I pretend to believe that the curse of sin is not real on my work? Or will I wipe the sweat off of my proverbial brow? Understand that work, it is laborious now because of sin, but that Christ can redeem. Christ has redeemed me, and therefore he can redeem my work and its purpose in this world. I had the question of whether I will complain or whether I will do my work with excellence from a sincere, true, and sincere heart. Because in my work, right, in my work and in your work, you are serving the Lord. There was a question uh, in my current job that uh, got brought up during the interview process. And, uh, and so, you know, you, when you go into an interview, right, you're pre-gaming. You're like, okay, trying. it's like a game of chess. Okay, what are the questions they're going to ask me? What are my answers going to be back to them? And so I thought it might come up, you know, describe your work ethic. That's a pretty common question. And so as I was thinking through that before the, the, uh, the interview, I was like, which route should I go? Should I think, you know, give them some fluff about my experience and blah, 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 blah. Or, or do I answer this as a Christian? And say, the reason I work hard, it's not for a paycheck, it's not for you, it's for King Jesus. And so uh, I went with that route, and, uh, and, and so it's always one of those when you go, when you take a stand, so to speak, right? All right, let the chips fall where they may, let's see how it goes. Uh, it took them aback a little bit, they, I don't think they were expecting that answer. Um, but the reason I say that is that when I am faced with difficult tasks or situations in work, when we are faced with difficult situations or tasks in work, Listen, as a Christian, the spotlight is put upon you. And there is accountability in the way you can reflect the good news that, yes, Jesus has transformed me. Again, is by doing your work with excellence to the glory of God. We don't work for a paycheck, ultimately. We don't work for an employer. We're working for our king. Which means then, right, that there is no room for laziness or complaining in the life of a Christian when it comes to our work. Because the one who shed his own blood for us, he is deserving of our very best. Martin Luther, we're coming up on uh, October 31st, which we celebrate the Reformation. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he once said, in light of this view, that all work is to be done to the Lord. He said, a poor maid should have the joy in her heart of being able to say, now I'm cooking, making the bed, sweeping the house. Who, who has commanded me to do these things? Well, my master and my wife have. Or <laughs> my master and his wife. Again, a slip of the tongue there. And my master and his wife have. See, I'm just seeing if y'all are awake. Uh, but uh, what, what has given them authority over me? Well, God has. Very well then. It must be true that I am not serving them alone, but I am also serving God in heaven. And that God is pleased with my service. And he goes on to say, this maid who is working as a Christian can say this. How could I not possibly be more blessed? Why, my service is equal to cooking for God in heaven. That's what it means to adopt this reality. That whatever I do, I am doing it to King Jesus. We work for the glory of God. And not only for our earthly authorities. And so does this not radically change the way and shift the paradigm for us when it comes to work? In our work, we're, we don't just try to do the bare minimum. No, as our Lord said, in our work, we should always be looking for ways to go the second mile. Because again, our Lord deserves the very best. No matter what your job is, if it's done with a sincere heart and a good will, 
And if you do it by way, but not by way of eye service, not as a boss watcher, that's the common, that's the contemporary translation there. That's the, yeah, uh, or as an eye pleaser. But if you do your work as a servant of Christ Jesus and listen, no matter what you do, it is beautiful and it is pleasing in the sight of God. And, and I think sometimes within the church, within God's kingdom, we, we've developed this this uh, differentiation between the sacred and the secular. Now, there, is there a unique calling on ministers of the gospel? Yes, there is. And are meeting spiritual needs more important than only meeting physical needs? Yes, that's true. And should we pray that God would raise up more, more future pastors and missionaries from our church? Yes, we should. This is my prayer for our church. I've prayed that so much because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. But in principle, in principle, the Lord is not more pleased with my pastoral work than he is with my engineering work. There, there is no divide within the kingdom of God between the sacred and the secular. All work is good work. And all work is sacred work if it is done to the glory of God. The unique, the unique thing about being a Christian is that God has placed a calling on every single one of your lives. And he has prepared good works for you to fulfill. And so when we think about calling very quickly, we think about our first, our calling to salvation. God has called us to salvation, to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus. And maybe if you're in this room this morning and you're hearing all this work, how the gospel should shape and affect and transform my life. And if that hasn't taken place for you, I would invite you this morning. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Receive his great love for you that he showed on the cross. Ask him to save you. And when you do that, an amazing reality takes place. And that his presence comes into your life. He gives you his spirit. And you begin to be transformed by his spirit. So God calls us first to salvation. He also calls us to Fulfill his mission in this world, which is to make disciples of all nations. God, God calls us to various stations in life. And that is in terms of our relational responsibilities. For many in this room, he has called us to be husbands or wives or fathers or mothers or sons or daughters, neighbors, friends, citizens. These are the different stations that God places you in, that you're to be faithful in your calling. But then also God does call us to service, to a certain type of work. And, and, and so David Platt, he once said this. He said, as Christians in the church, we, ne we must never set up some false dichotomy or artificial distinction between some whose work is more noble than others. Pastors aren't more noble than bankers. Missionaries aren't more noble than telemarketers. I may would take a. Uh, I don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And William Tyndale said, I'm, I'm uh, not going to go down that rabbit chase. William Tyndale said, if we look externally, there is a difference between washing dishes and preaching the word of God. But as touching to please God, there's no difference at all. So this is a biblical view of work that we should have. That when done to honor and to glorify our God, there's no difference in his sight between preaching and washing dishes. Both. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
I want to encourage you this morning, church, fulfill your calling. Whatever God has called you to do, pursue it with vigor and with excellence. Now, you might be thinking, what if I don't know what God has called me to do with work? Then I want to encourage you, pursue whatever is in front of you. God works out your calling sometimes by giving you this special insight. But at other times, he works out your calling providentially by bringing normal situations of life before you. And then he governs and he guides those situations to lead you. Fulfill your calling. Fulfill your calling. Why do we do this? Verse 8, Paul says this. We do so. We work hard with excellence to the glory of God, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or whether he is free. So that means, church, we can endure unjust treatment at work. And we can work heartily for bosses or for employers who don't treat us well because we know that we have the promise of future reward on the horizon. Because our God is real. Because we have a Savior who is risen, reigning, and who is good. Therefore, we can take him at his word. Listen, if this is all we had to live for, if this life was all we had to live for, then what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Let's eat, let's drink, let's be married, because tomorrow we die. But the truth is, if you are in Christ, Christ has been raised from the dead, and therefore heaven awaits you one day. And so because this is true, because heaven awaits us, this means that whether or not we get to follow our dreams or fulfill our passions And the work that we do in this lifetime, regardless of that, we still work hard. We work for the Lord because we know that henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And Paul says, not only to me, not just because of the work that I have done, he says, but he will award this same crown of righteousness to all who have loved his appearing. Future reward awaits you one day for the work you do in this life. Do not grow weary in doing good. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back to the Lord. That's a promise that we can take to the bank, church. And so we shouldn't be idle in our work, and we shouldn't be idolatrous in our work either. Rather, we work hard, we give it all that we have for Jesus. And now maybe just to apply this a little bit, so... For those maybe who are in classes right now, uh, looking at you, Ethan, right? For those, but for the students in our church, this means that in my studies, right? In your studies, even if you don't particularly enjoy a certain subject, you press through because you're saying, I'm not learning this. I'm not studying this just for my own self or my own gratification. I'm doing so for the glory of King Jesus. Maybe for the employees in this room, maybe for those, right? Me included, who have a regular job where we have supervisors above us. That means no matter what may be given to us, so long as it doesn't contradict the principles and the truths of Scripture, whatever job is given to us, we take it on and we do it heartily because our king is deserving of the very best. Managers, business owners, this means, this passage means that you are to treat your employees with dignity, respect, and equality. You are to reflect the gospel in your gentleness and your fairness to your employees. And for those of you in this room, up to this point, you're thinking, this sermon does not apply in any way to me because I am retired. 
You're not off the hook. Don't worry. Listen, a biblical view of retirement doesn't mean that you just cease from labor and then spend the rest of your days in leisure living for yourself. Do you remember that video we shared about a month ago with the John Piper video? Right. We're, our job, we're not just to spend our days in retirement collecting seashells, right? As the last season of life before we meet the Lord. This is what the world tells you your retirement should look like. But as Christians, we're not going to buy what they're selling. As long as God has given you a capable body to work, we are to work. Because work, listen, it's not a necessary evil. Work is good and work is from God. Now, that means maybe that your nature of work might change. Maybe you don't go into and clock in every single day, and that's okay. But what I want to encourage you is that if you are retired, then use your newfound margin to still serve the Lord. Use it to serve the Lord. Don't use it to spend it on yourself. And if you're wondering how I can do that, just let me know. Because there are an abundant, there are many ways uh, for you to serve in our church during the season. And I just want to brag on one member in particular, and that is Larry Clark. Larry, uh, Larry has done so much for our church. And, uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, um, he's done so much for our church. And I often joke with him. I often say this, Larry, you only thought you were retired. But, uh, but you know, you, you now, in many ways that he works and he pours himself out for our church, it shows that he, he is still seeking to serve the Lord in his retirement season. And many also in this room are doing the same. And I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself in that season, continue to do so to the glory of God. And so in conclusion, tomorrow as you pull into the parking lot, as you place your vehicle in to park, and as you begin walking into your workplace, whether you're working in IT at a hospital whether you're working in the pharmacy at a local grocer, whether you're managing a grocery store, whether you're stocking shelves in a retail position, whether you're driving forklifts in a warehouse or ensuring work is done in a safe manner in a warehouse, whether you're stewarding God's creation through environmental remediation or building infrastructure as a civil engineer, serving someone as their admin or teaching little ones at, at school or in a daycare or in the home, whatever it may be. That God has called you into this season. When you walk into that workplace tomorrow, remember this amazing truth. As you cross that threshold in my work today, I am serving the Lord. God has called you to this work, which means that your work is good and it is dignified. Therefore, work hard with all your might, with a full heart. Not as a people pleaser, not as a eye watcher or a boss watcher, but in sincerity and with integrity, knowing that you are serving your Savior and working for the Lord in all that you do. I'll end by sharing this story. When growing up, and it's still true today, growing up, my dad is my hero. And one of the ways he's my hero is with his work ethic. I don't know of a man who works harder than my father. The, the example that he set before me is high. And so in all my work, I strive to reach the bar that he has set in my own work, work ethic. 
And from, from the very first pages of the Bible, church, we see that our God, he is a working God. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, right, we are called to be imitators of God as beloved children. Therefore, as his children, may we also be known as a working people, modeling the work ethic of our Father in heaven and doing all that we do for the glory of his name. All work is good work if it is done to the glory of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.